always a delight to be here uh, at Phoenix Bible Church with you all. Thank you for your warm welcome and uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, you know, Tim called me the other day, and I'm he had something he wanted to talk with him about, and so I'm standing outside, and I'm talking to him, and I could hear these noises in the background. I'm like, Tim, what's going on? He said, man, we're having the whole staff over in just, uh, just about an hour, and uh, da 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 and he's talking to Jay while he's talking to me, and I said, then why are you talking to me? Okay, bro, Jay, I need you. Get off the phone and start helping <laughs> So anyway, isn't that amazing? At Christmas, you're having people over that you care about. What do you got to do? You got to spruce up the place, right? I mean, I know we all live in immaculate, pristine houses or apartments or some other place all the time, right? Probably not. So when someone's coming to the house, you got to clean it up. Am I right? So anyway, I was reminded of that when Emily, my wife, and I were in Peru in the late 1980s. And I know you think, like, was there even life in the 1980s? There was for a few of us. And so we're down there to meet with a young lady who was a missionary. who She was working with Food for the Hungry. And we got down. And one of the things I found is when we're in the city of Lima, Peru, the buildings were, like, dirty. The streets were dirty. It was just, I can't even describe to you how dirty stuff was. It was the type of thing to where the infrastructure there was bad, water, people would have uh, buckets in their tubs, and the faucet would be on full, but it was just dripping. And so sometimes water came through, and sometimes it didn't, but they did that to be able to catch it. If you're walking on the streets, you'd get like grimy stuff on your skin and in your scalp. It was just, it was nasty. And so a big part of that was the problem as to what was going on economically and politically and all sorts of stuff in the nation of Peru at the time. But one of the things I noticed is we were going down some of the main streets in Lima, capital city, and they were painted and they were sandblasted and they were like, the front of the buildings was absolutely immaculate. The rest of it, not so much. But the front was. Well, why was that? It was because the Pope had come to town. 1985 and again 1988. Pope John Paul II was the very, very first pope to come to that Roman Catholic country of Peru. And the reason why he did was because there was so much political unrest. There was a lot of uh, Marxist and communistic ideologies that were there. There were terrorist groups that were trying to influence. There was a whole thrust of liberation theology within the churches. And so he was like, I got to go. And so he was there. But why were those buildings clean? Because the Pope was coming to town. And that's not Santa Claus is coming to town. The Pope was coming to town. And we got to have everything pristine and clean for the television cameras and for other stuff that's going to go on. We want to put our best foot forward. Well, you know, this morning we're going to talk about somebody coming to town that's more important than the Pope. That's Jesus. And if Jesus is coming to town, what do you do? How do you get ready for that? Well, in this whole Advent season, you know, Tim and AC and the team here have said, we want to do an Advent season focused on John the Baptist, one of the primary characters in Scripture. Matter of fact, John the Baptist was stated as far as Jesus. He didn't get a lot of time, a lot of airtime, so to speak. But Jesus said there's no person that's been born to the human race that's more significant and important than John the Baptist. 
He says that in Matthew 11, 11. And so it made sense for us to look and say, what was John the Baptist all about? And he is coming, and I want to invite you to turn with me to a portion of Scripture in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them address some of this narrative about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And so that would underscore the importance of this individual and of what's happening here in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online, invite you to grab a Bible, look at it, whether it's paper or digital or whatever, or if you don't, just check it out on the screen so you can see. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Listen to what the Holy Spirit directed Matthew, the apostle, to write. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is who he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when John saw how many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, that's a reading of the Word of God. Let's, let's talk about it just a few minutes as to what it means. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is a prominent figure in Scripture, as I've already said. And his primary message in preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus whose name means Yahweh or God saves just like on the sign here, Jesus saves. That's what Jesus means, is Yahweh is our Savior, or Yahweh saves. The Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. That's what his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, means. It's incorporating all of that. So John the baptizer comes and he's saying, I am preparing the way for someone who's coming after me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie or to tie for him. He's the significant one. That's what we've talked about in previous weeks. But how do we get ready? In one word, John's message was what? Repent. Repent. Now, what does that mean? The word literally means to change one's mind. That's what the Greek terminology means. In other words, your, your, life, your mindset was thinking this way, 
And to repent means you turn and do an about face mentally and intellectually to where I used to believe, I no longer believe, and I believe something else. Now that belief also is to change behavior. Our behavior should come out of our beliefs. And that's what he's saying is change your mind, do an about face mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and do an about face the things that you're pursuing that think you're going to give you life, that think going to cause your life to flourish, turn away from those things and turn to the one who promises abundant life, and that's Jesus. So that's his message. Now, oftentimes we think of John the Baptist or anybody that's saying repent. You may see a little character, cartoon character with a little sign and a long beard and crumpy clothes and all that. Repent. And honest, when I used to work at college ministry and, you know, and a lot of my students and a lot of our student staff were down at Arizona State, they would constantly come to me and say, what do you think about these street preachers that come? What do you think about the ones that stand on the square? What do you think about the ones that are calling all the co-eds whores and, and, and all the other guys who are mongers and, and they're talking about drunkards and they're talking about abusers and they're talking all this type of stuff. I mean, that wins a lot of friends and influences people, doesn't it? No, there were people that came and they, I guess, envisioned themselves to be like John the Baptist. Repent. Repent of what? Well, those people were oftentimes calling people to repent of outward personal sins. And there was a target-rich environment there. Let's be honest. I mean, it's not known as a party school for nothing. And so there was a lot of issues that were there, but is that the right approach? Well, John the Baptizer addressed that, but he went deeper the reason why he addressed the sins of the flesh, so to speak, is because of this. Sins of the flesh can certainly keep a person from God. Sins of the flesh can keep us from becoming receptive to the work that God wants to do. And John the Baptist didn't shy away from that. That's a matter of fact why he was killed. Uh, if you fast forward in John the Baptist's life to Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to ask you to turn there right now, but, and it's, it's a pretty sordid tale, but John the Baptist is calling out the chief political officer of the day. His name was Herod, Herod Antipas. And he calls him out because Herod Antipas had gone to see, according to Mark 6, his half-brother Philip, who was also another political leader. When Herod Antipas went to see, uh, Her uh, to see Philip, there was a good thing and a bad thing that happens, and that is Herod sees Philip's wife, and gets the hots for his brother, his half-brother's wife. You see a problem coming? Sure. And so Herod goes back and he divorces his wife. She divorces her husband so that they can get together. And what complicates the thing is Herodias was her name. Herodias was also Herod Antipas's niece. Like their family tree didn't branch. You follow me? You see a problem with this? Yeah. I would say he fell in love, maybe he fell in lust. I don't know, but they end up getting hooking up and getting married. Well, John the Baptist sees that and he says, mm -mm -mm, no, you don't. This is a bad deal. You're violating the word of God in multiple ways and he calls them out. How do you think Herod Antipas responded to that? You think he, he repented? Hardly. He was hardened. He brings them in, he throws them into jail. And the whole story that's there, if you want to look it up some later time in Mark 6, check it out. But, but I can't get into all the details, but he wants to preserve him because even Herod honors him as a good and godly man, even though he was calling out a sin. 
But the text says Herodias, the wife. You know that phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? This is there in, in, it's exponentially there. And so she creates a way where she wants John the Baptist's head on a platter and she manipulates her husband now to give her John the Baptist's head literally on a platter. That's how John the Baptist died, was calling out their sin. John did that. But the thing that's more noteworthy about John is something that's going to happen. But let me, let me back up just a second as I'm getting ahead of myself. The sins of the flesh can keep us from what God wants. Uh, I worked in Dallas with a guy called Dave Peterson. And Dave was talking about, he was meeting with a guy one day and he was sharing the gospel with him and trying to help him understand his need for Jesus. And this guy kept saying, Dave, I just can't buy that Jesus thing. I've got too many intellectual objections. And he kept hitting that phrase, I've got too many intellectual objections, like with uh, creation and with the flood and with all these miracles and all this stuff. I just got too many intellectual objections. And Dave said to me, he said, Rick, I felt a strong compulsion that can no, come from nowhere but the Spirit of God to ask him this question, which seemed like a non sequitur, but it was a question. And the question was this. He said, okay, what's her name? I said, what? What, what did you say to me? He said, I was in too deep already. He said, what's her name? So the guy hung his head, mentioned a woman's name. And Dave said to this guy, he said, now be honest with me. She's your intellectual objection, isn't she? He went, yeah. What was the issue there? What was going down? He did not want to acknowledge that there was a God or that his son Jesus Christ had come, not because he really couldn't believe it, but because he didn't want to be held accountable to anyone for his lifestyle choices. Sin, personal sin, can keep us away from accepting and following the path that God has for us and that which will truly lead to our flourishing. That's the first thing that John the baptizer called out. But the bigger issue for today is you look at what he said, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are they? They're the religious leaders. They are like the real upstanding citizens of the community, of the religious community. They're the ones that everybody else is saying, man, they set the bar so high, there's no way that I can achieve to that. John the baptizer didn't say that. He looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. What's a viper other than a car? What's a viper? It's a snake, and especially a poisonous snake. Uh, if you ever saw Indiana Jones, you know, as far as the, the Last Crusade, not the Last Crusade, what was it? Uh, what was the first one? Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, and he's looking for all of this, and he goes into, the, into that underground area, and he has a, for, a torch, and what's there? There's snakes, the ground's moving. It freaks him out because he's terrified of snakes. That's the picture that's here. You brood of vipers, you're like a nest of rattlesnakes. That's hardly the thing you would say to religious leaders, is it? But John the Baptist is calling them out. He's in their grill about this, isn't he? Why would he say that? It's because what they had done through their religion is they were distracting people from the truths of God's word. And they were saying, in order to be to God, you have to be better. You have to get your act together. You've got to stop doing this and start doing that. And they made it such a heavy, onerous type of thing. Here is what Jesus' response to them is later. 
In Matthew chapter 5, same book we're in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in verse 21, 20. I tell you, Jesus, that unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never even see the kingdom of heaven. You won't enter into it. You got to be more religious than the most religious. And then he goes on at the end of that in verse 48. He says, you would therefore be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. How religious is religious enough? One more righteous deed yet. You never get there. You never will get there. He's saying in order to get into heaven, you got to be without sin. You have to be perfect. Now, if you feel like you're perfect, I'm going to ask anybody in the room, if you think you're perfect, can you raise your hand? I didn't think so. If you do raise your hand, the person you came with is probably going to punch you and say, put your hand down. Because there's none of us that's perfect. We're all damaged goods, right? It's just a matter of levels or degrees of dysfunction or sin. But what we tend to do is we tend to define sin in light of somebody else's experience. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. Well, what's a sinner? Well, the person that does this, the person that does that, the person that doesn't do this, we always define sin in light of somebody else's experience, somebody that's a little further down the ladder than we think we are. You follow me? But the Bible says that's not true. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God because his standard is perfection, absolute perfection, and none of us is there. I certainly am not, and newsflash, neither are you. We've all been infected by the sin virus. Jesus goes on in Matthew 6, still in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father that's in heaven. And then he gives three areas of religious activity. When you pray, when you fast, when you give. He's saying, when you pray... I'm sorry, first, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. He's pointing toward the religious leaders who do it to be noticed by people. When you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites, the religious leaders who want to be known for their wonderful flowery prayers. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites who, who put on a gloomy face. Oh, man, I'm so hungry. Oh, I've been fasting for the last three minutes, and I'm really, really hungry. Why do they do that? To be noticed by people. He's saying religiousness is not the answer. And that's what John the baptizer is saying. He not only called out the personal sins, Sins of the flesh, like sexual sins or drunkenness or materialism or all kinds of other types of things. He also called out that which was more insidious and more destructive, and that's religious sin with its accompanying self-reliance and spiritual pride. That was the message of John the Baptist, more so than the individual sin. That's why in Matthew chapter 23, it says, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, Jesus is speaking in this passage. And woe is not like you see something that's really awesome. And you go, oh, whoa. It's not that. It's like, woe, like woe is me. You're in trouble. This is woe that's come upon me. And he's saying to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, 
for you shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. What's one of the primary reasons why people don't want to hear about Jesus or about Christianity? Isn't it hypocrisy? Isn't that the claim that gets thrown back? Church is just full of what? Hypocrites. There's, church may be full of religious people, but we got to make sure it's not, we're not hypocrites. You know, Jesus said, you should pray. When you pray, pray like this. When you give, give like this. When you fast, fast like this. He wasn't down on these religious actions, but he's saying the motivation has got to be right. In chapter 23, I was just talking about, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and yet have neglected the weightier measures of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, what they had done is they took God's word and they made it something that it shouldn't be. They say, you will take and you're giving. You're so proud of the fact that you tithe. You set aside a tenth of the first of what you have, even down to the very, very smallest seeds and plant products that could possibly be. You set aside that, and yet you neglect the weightier measures of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, so to speak. You're, you're focusing, you're majoring on the minors. Don't do that. That's religion. And that's the whole point that's here. Woe to you who do that. It's not about religion. I think it's important that we understand this. You know, in the book, I was doing a Bible study. I am doing a Bible study right now with some guys, with some retired business guys and professional people. And, and we've been studying what is sin. And I pulled out a thing from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia about some word studies. And so let me just tell you, some of this says, it talked about some of those sins of the flesh, but it says the depth of sin goes way beyond that. It says the Old Testament shows that sin emerges in its full range and possibility in the very sphere of religion and morality, which may seem to be our securest refuge against it. That's a part of the this insidiousness of sin. The tragedy is that intertwining all this scrupulousness is a deep and hidden sinfulness, which is even more sinister because it escapes even their own awareness. It is a corruption of a sincere and sincerely practiced religion, which is ultimately a supreme manifestation of religious pride, a substitute which makes possible evasion of the true religion of humility, penitence, faith, and obedience. That's the Pharisees. That's the scribes. That's the Sadducees. That's the hypocrites, even in the 21st century. We may do the right things, but if we do them for the wrong reason, and it puffs up pride within us, that is sin. We need to repent. We need to turn from that. We need to change our thinking and change our behavior. So if religion is not the way, then what is it? You think, well, thank you for finally asking that. I feel like crud right now. Thanks a lot, preacher. I came in feeling bad enough about myself, and now I just feel a whole lot worse. How uplifting is that? Well, there is good news, and here's where we want to land. Repentance, which leads to relationship, not religion, is the path to following Christ. We do, it does involve repentance. We turn away from our own self-reliance. 
We turn away from those things that we believe we can do, even good things that will make us acceptable to God. We turn away from that and instead turn to the one who gives us the abundance of life. His name is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter 1, it says that, that John the baptizer was baptizing and Jesus came. Verses 29 through 30, it says that John looked up and he saw Jesus. And he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The good news is this. You don't have to try to offload your sin by out counteracting the good that you do with the bad that you've done. I don't have to do that either. And that is a huge relief, isn't it? What I have to do is to focus on Jesus Christ who died on a cross to pay a debt he didn't owe to pay my sins and your sins. For the wages of sin is death, it says. All of sin, but the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God for his gift in Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Romans 6. That's the greatest of all Christmas gifts, isn't it? And that's who John wanted to point people to. In John chapter 3, not all of the, the, the Pharisees turned away from Jesus. Actually, there was one Nicodemus that came to see Jesus at night, it says in John 3. And he says, you know, you, we know you came from God because the things you said, nobody could say those apart from somebody that comes from God. And he wants to know how to have a relationship then with God. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you got to understand, it's not your religious pedigree that's going to get you in. You have to be born again. He said, what do you mean born again? How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? He says, no, you don't get it. What I'm saying about it is there's spiritual birth. Unless a person is born of the water physically and born of the spirit, they will not see the kingdom of God. It's in that context that he goes on to explain to him in John chapter 3, verse 16, very familiar words to most of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his uniquely born son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world, that you and me, might be saved. What a beautiful promise. What a wonderful gift. And how do I receive that gift? Like I do any gift. I don't try to pay it off. That would cheapen the gift and it would insult the giver. I receive it with gratitude. I receive it by faith with thankfulness. John also says that those that have the son have life and those that don't have the son don't have life. That's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's the picture that's there. You've got to be born again. Some years ago, there was a lady that worked in our church at Desert Springs, and she, um, she had a client that came to have his hair trimmed by her, and, and he would, like talking to a bartender, he would offload on her about his marriage and other stuff, and she said, you need to call my pastor and, and talk with him, and he didn't want to do it. He came out of a different group. It was a very uh, religious group. He was not very religious, but his his involvement was. I mean, that's what his church experience had been. 
And he didn't want to come and talk to some preacher guy. And I don't know. Finally, he relented and said, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Just get off of it. You know, I'll call him. So he did. And he came. And I think he was expecting someone in long robes and maybe some jewelry and, you know, all this type of stuff. And, and I was in jeans and baseball shirt and probably a ball cap or something like that. And it's going, whoa. And so we introduced each other. And he said, hi, I'm Jim. I said, I'm Rick. And he said, I'm here to talk about my marriage. I said, yeah, that's what I thought. He said, I don't want to talk about being born again. I said, you what? That seemed like pretty random. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. He said, no, I don't want to talk about being born again. I said, okay, that's fine. Let's talk about your marriage. So about an hour we talked, and uh, he did have some stuff he needed to deal with in his marriage, for sure. And so after about an hour, I said, bro, that's about all I got for you today. Uh, I'd be glad to meet with you and your wife if you want to come back. And, And so he said, okay. He said, but before I go, I just got a question for you. He said, sure, what is it? He says, what does it mean to be born again? I said, I thought you didn't want to talk about that. He said, well, I don't, but what does it mean? And so I went to where you think? John chapter 3. And I shared with them the good news that Jesus had shared to Nicodemus about being born again. And we talked about it a little bit. He said, oh, that's what that means? I said, yeah. He said, okay. Two weeks later, he made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. A few weeks later, he was baptized. And a few weeks later than that, got in a men's Bible study group, a discipleship group, and he's still walking with Jesus in a big way. Isn't that great? Isn't it beautiful to see how the Spirit of God works like that with someone who didn't want to hear about being born again? It's like, methinks thou dost protest too loudly, but yet God's Spirit was at work. But even a person who comes to faith knows Jesus, sin can still affect us, can it? Absolutely. And that can separate us from him. And the sin of hypocrisy in particular. David was a man who was known after God's own heart. The beginning of the Old Testament character, David, the king of Israel, he's known as a man after God's own heart, wrote many of the Psalms. End of his life, he's also known as a man after God's own heart. But there was a dark season in David's life where this good and godly guy followed his own path and got involved in an adulterous affair and a child out of wedlock, also committed murder to cover up his sin until he was confronted with the sin. Nothing could take away what he had done, but Psalm 51 gives us a beautiful insight into his repentance. When he comes to the Lord and he says, if you wanted sacrifice, I would give it. If you wanted whatever, I would do it to take away the weight, the guilt of my sin. But you, O Lord, want me to be humble and broken and confess to you that I have sinned. And a contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart, it says in Psalm 51, you will not turn away. That's one of the beauties of God's grace. The consequences of David's sin continued on, but God removed the guilt of his sin, as it says in Psalm 32. Why? Not because of some religious action, not because of some some contrition that he does, some outward act, not because of some religious involvement. It's because he was honest with God. And he said, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Against you, O God, and you alone have I sinned. Please forgive me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And he did. That's why he ended as he started. 
known as a man after God's own heart. You know, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we are sinners, that God is right and we're wrong, if we confess our sins, what's the promise? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's to come into the household of faith, and that's to maintain fellowship as a member of the household of faith. We confess our sins. That's why it's a part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us this day our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who've trespassed against us or our debtors. That's fellowship. That's what he also calls us to do. And that prepares the way for God's work in our life. I was going through some Christmas stories, Christmas cards actually, and there was one that I came across just the other day. It's from Megan, and it was a testimonial card that we sent out to our church at the end of the year just to say, look, your investment is doing this and changing lives. And Megan's story was one that I think squares with this. She starts out by saying, I was a hypocrite. I knew the right words to say. I knew the right things to do to fit into the church and the people who were here, but I was getting tired and about to give up. I was a hypocrite. Then Uganda changed all of that. What do you mean by that? We took a group of people to Uganda to work with the Watoto Children's Ministry to build homes for orphans. And starting from the ground up, we built homes out of adobe block for these children to be able to have a place to live because Uganda had a horrible problem with orphans in the streets because of the civil war that had been there and the AIDS pandemic and all like this. And these kids had no place to go. And so like other churches, we joined in with this initiative. And Megan was a part of the group that went with us from Desert Springs. And she saw the love of Jesus radiating in these children who had nothing but Jesus and each other. They had a family together, and we got to build homes for them. And she says, in that trip, I decided to surrender my plans, my will, my direction to Christ. Instead of trying to figure this out and do this on my own, I'm going to give it over to him. And it's made all the difference in the world. Why? Because Megan experienced what James, the brother of Jesus, says in his book. This is true religion, and that which is pure and undefiled, to visit the widows and the orphans in the day of their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. If you want to be religious like that, then knock yourself out, but do it for the right reasons, as thankfulness to God and allowing him to guide your steps. I, I love what you guys are doing with Ohana for Christmas. You know, every one of those gifts ought to be taken off that tree. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying this is an opportunity like no other. You know what Ohana means, really? It means family. That's what Ohana is. And so these children are part of a family. They need to know they're not alone. This is pure religion and undefiled. And just like Megan, I'll bet you that if you do that with the right reasons, you'll also sense God's pleasure in being able to do something who can't do it for themselves. Okay, so I applaud you. I thank you for that heart of service for this church and this community. Keep that up because that's exactly what the Lord wants us to do, to demonstrate our religion, our faith by our actions. And this morning, honestly, if, if you come in today and you don't know Jesus in a personal way, 
Why not? I'll bet it's not intellectual objections. I'll bet there's something issue you need to say, God, I'm going to surrender it. I'm going to give it up. I need you. You're the Savior. You're my Savior. You've offered to forgive me. I want to ask you to forgive me my sins and welcome me into your family, your ohana. If you've already made that decision and there's something that's blocking you, that's keeping you this Christmas season from experiencing the fullness, then turn away from that which is not causing you to flourish and turn to the one who is the author of life and allow him to give you the abundance of life that leads to true flourishing. You'll never be sad. You'll be thankful. And this Christmas will be the best ever. Can we just pause and pray even as we conclude this morning? But you here, please. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the examples in history that we have. And thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit to take these truths and to make them reality. Lord, if there is anything that's blocking us or hindering us from coming to you, unashamedly and unreservedly this Christmas season, may we lay that at the foot of the cross and allow you to do your work both in us and through us. Thank you for the people, the men and women of Phoenix Bible Church and the way that you are doing a great work here. And Father, we want to continue to worship you today and worship you not just in a concluding song, but we want to worship you even as we leave from this place so that people will see Jesus in us they will hear of Jesus from us. Father, we thank you for the good work you've begun and that you will complete it. We ask this in Jesus' name.